0: What are a few things you wish you knew when you started investing? Detecting trends? Predicting when to bounce? How about simply buying Bitcoin? You might sit in your bathrobe or on your couch all day staring at price charts, and this is definitely a way to learn how to trade. But for the past year now, there's a smarter, quicker way in the U.S. eToro. With millions of users in over 140 different countries, it's the top social trading platform worldwide. What's the advantage? eToro offers copy trading, where you can learn from and even, if you feel like trusting them, mirror the investing strategies of the top traders or friends on the platform. They even offer this crazy AI bot that trades off of social sentiment, wisdom of the crowds. You can follow that thing or, you know, just people. But there's no doubt about it. eToro makes smart trading, whether you're buying Bitcoin or Tesla two years ago, simple. So check out their website today, eToro. Smart crypto trading made easy. Hey, Dave Hollerith here. Protecting your personal Citadel is a theme we at Bitcoin Magazine pay a lot of attention to. For those of you who don't remember, the Citadel meme in the Bitcoin community goes back to the sci-fi Reddit post where the year is 2025, and a Bitcoiner has come back in time to tell us about why we should not invest in Bitcoin. This is hyper-Bitcoinization. The time traveler tells us he's from a post-apocalyptic future world where everything is descended into ruin. Bitcoin and land are the only assets that have retained value, and as a result, there's an enormous wealth divide between those who bought Bitcoin early versus those who bought it late. Early Bitcoin adopters have been forced to live in walled citadels to protect their Bitcoin miners and themselves. Not a future we should hope for, or even think about seriously. But it drives a cultural point, mainly, that Bitcoin owners take on a new level of personal and financial responsibility. Bitcoin transactions aren't reversible, you know? In light of this theme, I spoke with Matt O'Dell, a staunch privacy and Bitcoin supporter who actively works to educate people on the best practices for owning, securing, and and keeping Bitcoin private. Matt's an interesting guy in that he understands some of the most advanced and complex ideas and concepts that are happening in this space. But he's also really good at talking to people who don't know about Bitcoin. And although we talked about security and privacy almost the entire time, the the conversation felt more about responsibility. So like what the responsibility of somebody who owns Bitcoin is and isn't. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was one of the best I've had on the show. And I hope you guys do too. So here it is. Well, to start, uh, I know you're coming to the Bitcoin conference.
1: We're stoked about that. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, You know, I love uh, Rod. is fantastic. Christian's fantastic. Uh, John is fantastic. The BTC Media team. I'm a big fan, so I'm really excited. Bitcoin 2019 was awesome, so Bitcoin 2020 should be even better.
0: Yeah, we we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, They're all all those sales guys are working their asses off right now it's locked down over here until the conference happens in March. We're pretty stoked
1: for it. So uh,
0: are, are, are y'all uh, going on the roof again?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's like the one thing that we have nailed down for sure. As you said, they are, you know, they're hustling over there. So I, I don't have anything else concrete about what, a, what a, how, how I will be participating. I want to participate a lot for the conference. I'm already doing workshops and stuff like that, but we will definitely be doing a live RHR. That was a lot of fun uh, last year.
0: you mentioned workshops. From what I can tell, you've gotten uh, a lot more active. You've always been like really active on Twitter in the Bitcoin community, but it seems like you've gotten a lot more active about uh, like education.
1: Uh yeah, so I mean, that was always a priority for me. Um, it's one of the reasons I ruined my OPSEC to begin with uh, back in, in 2016. And the workshops have basically risen as a response to, we have a great New York Bitcoin community. Yeah. uh, Mostly because of Pierre Rochard, but also because of the guys at BitDevs that have been running BitDevs. Uh, So there was a lot of, there was a lot of support in the community to do hands-on workshops Um, and we've seen both you know user guides video user guides on youtube are very useful to people and and just getting their hands dirty uh live is really important and I, I think you know a lot of these topics seem really complicated uh which they are in a lot of ways but when you actually get your hands on and you're actually using it people grasp it way quicker and it becomes um you know much more approachable yeah
0: do you, do you guys do anything like user based education, like just like getting people comfortable with like sending and receiving Bitcoin transactions and like which wallets to use and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, so it's always like a time-based thing, right? I mean, I've been personally investing a lot of time in trying to educate people and, and you have different levels, right? So like Twitter is extremely useful to educating large amounts of people. Podcast format is extremely useful. Uh, videos on YouTube are extremely useful. You hit a lot of people across, you know, across the world. And, and these workshops, we basically had to limit them to 30 people and they sell out within like two days. We don't do them for a profit. Usually it's because of food and drink. Why the, why there's a cost or in, in the case of the cold card workshops it's because we actually would buy cold cards for people if they chose to opt that way. So they didn't have to get a chip to their house. Okay. Um, but they get sold out right away. So we're at capacity. So then the question is, what benefits the most from like a three-hour hands-on workshop? And we've we've noticed that you know we think the 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 sweet spot there, at least until you know, unless unless we can scale this up more, which is hard to scale these workshops, is this like mid-level user. Uh, so not necessarily you know, using, a using your first mobile wallet. It's more, you know, in this case, it's the, the first set of workshops we've been doing is cold card. Um, using your cold card with your own full node. So that's like a, a slightly, it's, it's, it's a proficient Bitcoin user that wants to level up, you know, and the next right. workshop that we're going to do is like build your own node. Um, so I, obviously I've, and I'm sure you have as well. I've had ton of experience, like bringing in absolute newcomers, um, in terms of getting them installed on their first wallet and whatnot. But that's we, we haven't actually done that in workshop form. I kind of did it. I helped out the Human Rights Foundation. Yeah. Um, we did a workshop for, for their Freedom Fellows, which is a group of activists that they support. And with that, it was more beginner-focused. Um, but even in that case, I mean, I was explaining very critical nuances of using Bitcoin privately to these people and the trade-offs. So it did end up being more advanced when it comes to like install GreenWallet or Samurai if you want to use onchain on your mobile phone or you use Breeze or Phoenix wallet if you're gonna do lightning, that gets across to people pretty well on Twitter. Uh, so so we, we haven't focused on that from like a workshop perspective.
0: Yeah, it's funny like thinking about um, like sort of teaching beginning users versus like the more complicated technical stuff. Because I know, I mean, you, you're, you seem to me like, a, like an expert, at least as much as I know, in the like, more complicated topics like um, why tornadoes are important in the Lightning Network and like, how they actually work and interact, things like that. Um, but I was like thinking about this. I think it's funny because I, I heard this interview with one of the guys. He was like, one of the founding editors of Wired Magazine. And he was like talking about how like, sort of end of the 90s, they were sort of like a reckless like group of guys like in a good way like they you know they were much more like exploratory about technology and in a way the way they onboarded so many new users is that they talked about the complicated stuff and it attracted a lot of people not 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 as big of a group of people but like a lot of dedicated fans just because like they fell down the rabbit hole of just being interested in like you know, things like the internet and stuff like that, right? When it was sort of like launching.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I've noticed that at least the most effective use of my time is to basically focus my efforts towards basically educating like the Bitcoin guy. Like every group of friends has like the one guy who's obsessed with Bitcoin. If we can level up his best practices, then he can go and level up his 10 Ten close friends, best practices when they're ready, you know, and that's way more scalable than trying to necessarily hit the end user, hit that new new beginner Bitcoiner from a personal basis. Like I'm able, to, I'm basically able to level up way more people by hitting that intermediate person who is is the Bitcoin guy in their group of friends.
0: Yeah, that's funny. In my group of friends, they literally call me Crypto Dave. Which you know I take offense to because they, they don't even get the different <laughs> the difference between you know why Bitcoin versus all other cryptos. They just sort of like lump it in. So maybe I've got some educating to do.
1: Yeah, you take what you can get, but you got to level them up to Bitcoin, Dave, soon.
0: Yeah, this thing that this uh Nathaniel Popper New York Times piece that came out. This is narrative that like a lot of mainstream media outlets push about Bitcoin, which is basically that Bitcoin is mostly good for criminals. I saw you posted on that. Like what's your problem with that kind of narrative?
1: I mean my problem with that post was that he says in the actual post that it's only 1% of it's allegedly only 1% of bitcoin usage. And this is coming from and I think it's even less than that per the chain analysis report, but he said 1% in his in his post. And that's coming from chain analysis. And chain analysis is in the business of overestimating that number and they still only came out with 1% or less than 1%. So it's a tiny tiny little fraction. You know more people use fiat for for criminal uses than than people use bitcoin. And with Popper specifically like it's more personal for me because I met him in I think 2014 GE was running a seminar series for their executives and both me and him spoke on a panel uh to the executives and cuz he was doing a tour of his book Digital Gold that he released yeah yeah and you know he was one of these early journalists that came to bitcoin and he was actually very positive in a lot of ways about bitcoin i mean like i i wasn't i didn't love all of his work but he he did a pretty good job of covering it and i think what his issue was was and we see this with a lot of journalists, is that he, whether that was the New York Times decision or his decision, he chose to not buy Bitcoin because he thought it would give him a bias, uh, that, a pro-Bitcoin bias. But I yeah. think what would happen with him is, is the exact opposite happened, is he didn't buy Bitcoin and he watched it go 100x, you know, like 2014, 2015, when Bitcoin hit a low of 150 and then you proceeded to go like to near 20,000. So a hundred X is like 15,000. Imagine watching that. It just, it just eats you up inside and you end up, everything gets jaded. Like, how is that the headline for 1% of, of Bitcoin users allegedly used it for illicit purposes? Like that is, you know, the headline was like, no one uses Bitcoin except for criminals. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, that's ridiculous. I was
0: confused by his, uh, his tweet or his like series of tweets, especially because like everything was accurate, like sounded accurate to the report too, but it just didn't really add up to like the headline and like sort of what it seemed like uh, the narrative he was pushing. So it's like, you know, there's like that discrepancy, but I mean, as a, as like a Bitcoin journalist who owns Bitcoin, like, you know, I get that kind of shit all the time. (laughs) And like, I'm not going to like, sugarcoat the fact that like bitcoin magazine is is uh you know uh for lack of better words we're pro btc you know and that like that's our bias so it's just it's kind of funny how like i don't know it's it's like in this world it kind of comes down to like everybody gets biased to something so you know i don't know i do you make anything out of that
1: no yeah i 100% agree everyone has a bias the important thing is to own the bias um and not grandstand about not having a bias when you clearly do have a bias and i i I think i get particularly triggered with this stuff because we see it with pretty much all privacy related technology uh we see with encryption we see it with with inter you know just internet privacy in general uh where they they basically try and frame the narrative where some criminals are using it so let's let's make the privacy worse for 99.9% of users who are law abiding. Um, and that's, that's not the proper way to look at these, these tools, because, um, if if we live in a society where you can track every single person, um, super easily and super cheaply, that's going to eventually fall into the wrong hands that, that power. And, and we're going to have, we're going to have major issues.
0: I mean, it, it's already, you know, very much like, I don't, you know, you, you talk about this. I feel like whenever you're on uh, Tales from the Crypt, like we're, we're, we're in a bad state um, already. So it's like, um, like they, I don't know. It's, it's funny to me, just like things like CoinJoin are, are, are made out to be bad when it's like, really, that's the only tool that, uh, you know, in, at least in terms of Bitcoin transactions, it's one of the few tools that people actually have to like hide their information.
1: Yeah, otherwise, all your past and future transactions are being tracked by anyone who you transact with, whoever you bought your Bitcoin from. Um, it's pretty ridiculous. And But I think it's important to when we're discussing this stuff to like it becomes immediately apparent to people when they see like what China is doing. Right. They see these authoritarians and they come in and they control their population. And that could be everywhere uh, if we don't stand up and make sure that doesn't happen. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, data is good for business and like governments, you know, function the same way for surveillance. So it's sort of like, you know, they want anything they can get to be more efficient at everything they want to do, you know, controlling power. So it's like, I mean, it becomes this thing where it's sort of like anybody, any of these entities are going to try and do it if they can, you have to assume, you know, so it's like, it's, yeah, it's a bad situation, but actually speaking about um, corporate entities that do this, um, you actually on the last uh, rabbit hole recap, you mentioned like a payments like sats back app that I actually interviewed the CEO uh, in a past episode on the show. You mentioned how they kind of have like a precarious privacy policy.
1: Yeah, we're talking about pay, right?
0: Yeah, we're talking about pay. Yeah, so from your perspective, what is the problem with pay?
1: The, the problem with pay is the business model seems to be harvesting user information and giving you very few sats back in return for it. Um, and it's one thing if they admitted that I uh, made that trade off very clear, but they seem to be hiding that from users and their privacy policy is written in such a way that it doesn't really guarantee you anything. Um, and then, I mean, we're Bitcoiners, don't trust Verify. Like, you shouldn't even trust the privacy policy anyway. So when you try and use the app, it, like, basically forces location permissions, which is, like, the ultimate uh, data, you know, data stream that you can have. And then they're able to link that to your withdrawal addresses. So it's almost like the payment method uh, for the rewards that they're paying you to already... Sacrifice your privacy is actually another tracking method that they have at their disposal. So they can link that all back. So you see the other two competitor services, right, is, is you have Lolly and you have Fold. Um, Fold absolutely kills it on the privacy front. They have a super strong privacy policy. Um, and their actual setup, the way they're set up, because they use a gift card system, um, they actually probably improve your privacy over just using your regular credit card. Like people have to remember, like there's a, there's some nuance here because using your credit card is tracked already. Like they're tracking all of your credit card payments. The merchant is also tracking you already. So with Lolly, at least they did it in a way that they're not getting location permissions. They're not, their, their model is to sell, your access to the merchant, you know, basically send users towards the merchant and then they get a cut in between, but they're not really gathering that much private data that isn't already being gathered for each transaction. And then fold is I think the best setup and fold is nice because your credit card company just sees you buying fold gift cards and the merchant only sees that you're spending with fold. So they don't have your credit card information. So it actually, improves your privacy to a degree. Uh, you know, fold obviously has all that information, but I I think that's good to see. And I, I, I think that when you have all these services competing against each other, there's absolutely no reason to use pay when you have fold and lolly there.
0: Yeah. At the end of this episode, I'm going to put, uh, just a little segment of my interview with Tom. Um, I actually listened to it right before this interview and, I couldn't really tell. I, I mean, I asked him about what they do with uh, user data two ways and by the way, he sort of uh, went around, (laughs) it. he avoided being able to say, you know, whether or not they did use sell user data or not. Um, He said they don't give location to vendors, but I I don't know. I'm curious of like how, where you would poke holes if I, if I like was going to talk to him again or something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just seems, it just, whenever someone's trying to like hide trade-offs, it like freaks me out. Like a lolly freaked me out in the beginning. Like me and a bunch of other people put them on blast about it. They, they, they reworded their privacy policy. They made it much stronger. They unequivocally stated, you know, that they are not in the business of selling user data. So like, like you can tell when people make a best effort, uh, to not mislead users and when they do the opposite. And I think pay has already um, burned too many bridges in my book, but, you know, we'll see if they if they can. I, I just, I don't see it happening. So, so I, I don't, I don't see them improving things. So, you know, we'll see.
0: That's fair. So on the pod and Twitter, you talk a lot about the Tor network and the need for running nodes. Uh, can you sort of explain uh, why the Tor network is important for,
1: Bitcoin? So Tor is a a network that runs through the internet that is designed to improve your privacy. And the, the major trade-off of Tor is that the bandwidth requirements are, you know, the, the, the bandwidth, the speed that you can, when you use Tor, the speed is way diminished from your like regular home internet connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the reasons I think you know the scaling debate that we had in Bitcoin uh, that culminated in 2017 about you know how much block data we are going to be transferring between nodes was so important is because it needed to remain possible to run a node through Tor. If you run an Ethereum node, like you have no chance of running it through Tor. And the reason that's important is because when users run nodes, they're verifying that the rule set of their node, is being followed by the network. So the only way to use Bitcoin in, in a proper trust minimized fashion is to be running your own node. Now the issue is if you can't run it through Tor, then whoever your internet service provider is knows you're running a Bitcoin node. And if and then that information will probably get back to the to your government as well. You know, some governments, you know, probably even, you know, probably the Americans as well, but like we know like the Russians have black boxes. The Chinese have boxes like where they're tracking all this data. Yeah. Um, so if you're not running it through Tor, they know you're running a Bitcoin node. So the first step to trying to co-opt Bitcoin would be to crack down on on people running nodes. Uh, and if they're not running them through Tor, they're just sitting they're sitting ducks for their governments. Uh, and, and maybe even in some situations, like maybe the ISPs will crack down 1st they We'll say you just that breaks our terms of service. You can't run a Bitcoin node. And then we'll see governments crack down or a mix of both but it's very important that people can run a node privately um and you know tor has its own trade-offs it's not a not perfect um hopefully we'll have something more in the future but it's what we have now um and it's really important that people can run through, through Tor if they if they need to now there's another step here with on the lightning network you know, so it's, it's more important that people can run. In terms of a regular Bitcoin node, it's more important that people can run on TOR than if they necessarily do run through TOR. Like I, like, I understand, like, if you just want, you don't, you don't want to deal with the performance hit of, of running through TOR because you live in a country where you think it doesn't matter that your ISP and the government knows you run a node. Um, if maybe, if you're already KYC'd or something and your government already presumably knows you have Bitcoin or you're on Bitcoin Twitter or you work for Bitcoin Magazine, then you know, running a node doesn't really dox you. Doesn't add any, anything really to the threat model. So I, I, I respect that in that regard. And as far as as far as Lightning goes, right now the biggest nodes on the the Lightning network. With Lightning network, you have to actually lock up liquidity, and the network scales based on how much liquidity is in the system. Um, and we have an issue right now where the the majority of, of the, the big nodes are run by known actors, um, and they aren't run through Tor. Yeah. So we have that same exact issue that we discussed earlier, where if you know if the ten biggest nodes are known exchanges, then the governments can just go and pressure those guys, and they can either stifle Lightning Network or just shut it down. Uh, so we need. Uh, and if you were going to try and, you know, right now Lightning could have, you know, needs a bunch more privacy improvements. But if if you're trying to, on a, on a basic level, if you're trying to attract, track Lightning payments, you're going to need to be in the routes that are being paid. So the the less nodes that we have that are being run privately, the fewer people you can pressure to basically, if you're not going to shut down Lightning Network to track those payments. So we need more people to run. Uh, Long term, we need more people to run lightning nodes privately through Tor. Um, they don't have to be massive, you know, but but every little bit of liquidity helps.
0: Yeah, the 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 reason to run more lightning Tor nodes privately that's because of sort of like the privacy rule. Just that uh, you get more privacy in a crowd. Is is that sort of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it comes down to like on a basic level. Like, just imagine we'll we'll just take it to its logical extreme. Um, let's say ninety five percent of the traffic on the Lightning Network is running running through Bitfinex's node and Bitrefill's node. Then all you, if you want to track payments or if you want to shut down the network, all you have to do is pressure Bitfinex and Bitrefill. You don't yeah. have to pressure anyone else. If you have a bunch of Tor nodes, then those payments might be going through five, six different hops uh, through Tor nodes that no one knows who they're, who's running those nodes. And you'll have a lot harder time tracking those payments or shutting down the network.
0: Overall, it's like a blanket privacy solution, Tor strikes me as the best thing users of the internet have right now. I, You know, I, I've heard people say that like sort of the best thing that could be hoped to see with Tor, since it is a little bit more difficult to set up and run and it kind of has it has like you know the the same kind of narrative that it's it's like you know used for dark web stuff that freaks a lot of uh, mainstream consumers out like I've heard people say that the best thing that could happen would be that you know someone like Firefox or Mozilla would just use Tor as their like incognito mode or something like that like what do you hope will be a privacy solution in the future, like with or without Tor for internet browsing?
1: Well, we already see, um, we actually saw Brave put it into their incognito mode. Yeah. You know, Brave, I have two main issues with Brave. I mean, it doesn't have that many eyes looking at the code, uh, which is never ideal, especially if you can't look at the code yourself, uh, you can't review the code yourself. And then the other thing is they have that horrible shitcoin but you don't actually have to use the shitcoin to use a browser, but it's good to see that it's an in incognito mode there. Hopefully we'll see it in other places. Uh, Firefox is obviously uh, seems like a prime target for it, but actually Tor has their own Tor browser. Um, yeah. That is actually pretty fantastic to use. It's pretty user friendly, very it's point and click. Um, and that'll probably give you like the best privacy. Like if you're, you know, as, as, as good as you're going to get if you're running it on like a Mac or a Windows, you know, like maybe Windows is spying on you, maybe Apple is spying on you, but it'll give you pretty decent privacy and it's, you know, point and click. Uh, I, I think, you know, one of these issues is that the adversaries constantly improve and there's always going to be a lot of nuance with privacy uh, in terms of what your threat model is. So there will never be like an easy perfect privacy for anything. Privacy will always be the more complicated option uh, because the easiest way to make a service more convenient is to reduce privacy and I think people should just assume like for 99% of users you should just operate under the assumption that if one of these like really sophisticated actors whether that's a state or a corporation wants to target you specifically they're going to be able to own you if you're connected to the internet, just in general. Uh, and you operate under that assumption, and then you work back from there and just try and reduce your exposure.
0: Yeah. So, sort of like the scales of like usability versus privacy, um, that kind of gets into this uh, SIM swapping. And like SIM swapping is something that's been happening for years. But, you know, sort of like the gist of it is that, you know, these wireless carriers, like even the big ones, have been proven just to have like terrible privacy or I guess security settings for users' passwords. So hackers or just any attacker can come in. A lot of times they can switch the SIM card to their, to a phone remotely, or they can convince like a at and employee to do it for them or like bribe them or something like that at really low cost. And um, that's a huge problem. The best excuse I've seen that uh the carriers have is that they're more focused on you know usability for everybody which is like easy use and you know not taking time to actually like be in person in a store to change your card and things like that like i don't know just uh what you think of the whole sim sim swapping issue right now i mean tons of uh bitcoin holders ha- have been uh hit by it more crypto than bitcoin but some bitcoin holders
1: too though i guess yeah, we've, some, we've had some heavy hitters get hit. Uh, like I remember, I forget who it was, like the now defunct Bitcoin Foundation. Um, no. Forget what his name was, he got hit like pretty hard and he was like on the board of the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, yeah, I mean, look, phone companies are kind of between, a, you know, they're in a rock and a hard place. Their, their policy sets right now are, are horribly insufficient, um, but you can also see on the opposite side, like if someone loses their phone, And they have to go into a store and do like a bunch of different checks and like wait three days and do all this stuff just to get a new phone activated. Like people will flip shits as well on them. So they're trying to straddle that middle ground where like they can help actual legitimate users recover their, their accounts, you know, recover their, their, their phone number and move to a new device in those situations. We've seen Apple use this as an excuse with their their iOS backups aren't end-to-end encrypted, And they're like, we're afraid that users are gonna lose their password. I don't know if this is like a legitimate excuse or not, but that's what they're saying. They're like, we're afraid users are gonna lose their password and they're not gonna be able to get uh, their backups. Uh, so we made that sacrifice, but in, in return governments are able to, to then take all those iCloud backups and surveil you that way. Um, I think long term, the real solution is like, why do we even have phone numbers anymore? It just doesn't <laughs> yeah. seem like something that is, is should be necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, ideally, in terms of Bitcoin, like you shouldn't be in a situation where your phone number can be used to access your Bitcoin. So like a lot of times we've seen it happen because of like Coinbase, your story on Coinbase and they usually the SIM swap attacks is services uh, allow you to reset your password using a phone number authentication only. Yeah, um, those services should be ashamed of themselves. They shouldn't offer that. Uh, if you have that enabled, someone can SIM swap you and then access your accounts, a lot of times email addresses have that enabled. So they, they access your SIM, then they access your email and then pretty much any account will either allow you to reset through email or through phone number. So if you hold your own keys, whether that's, you know, on a hardware wallet, cold storage, even like a mobile wallet, um, that attack vector isn't there anymore. So really what you should be doing is, well, obviously with Bitcoin, you should be holding your own keys um, because not your keys, not your coins. So that protects your Bitcoin. But in terms of all your other accounts, you should be able, you should be trying to remove your phone number from as many accounts as possible. Uh, You should at least be looking for settings that say disable phone-based recovery. Um, But what I've noticed is like a lot of banks and stuff are really slow moving here and they they actually force you to keep a phone number on file and use it as an authentication method, which is like absolutely ridiculous.
0: Yeah. There's, there's a lot of those problems. Even, even non-banks, just that's all services. I feel like they want the phone number.
1: Yeah, but in those situations, you're going to have to use like a, a burner number that's not your normal number that everyone knows. Or, uh, you know, some people opt for like a Google Voice number, which you can get in addition for free, uh, which isn't like a proper burner. It's connected to your identity, but it's it's, it's harder to swap because it's connected to your Google account yeah Uh, you know if if people are using their uh, a google account or like a microsoft account as their main or an apple account as their main account like you got to make sure that account is the most locked down out of anything because that's the account people are going to be sending password requests to so they compromise that account and then they can get into everything else um and then like the simplest way to check like if you're secure is like go through those forgot password prompts go to the important sites uh go to your email provider site click the forgot password button and try and get in with just your phone number if you can get in with your phone number if they send you an sms text that you click the button you or you put in the code and you, you reset your password that way um then then an attacker can do that as well um and you you need to you need to figure out how to button that issue up whether that's disabling phone number on that service moving to a different service using a burner number You got to, you got to do it on a case by case basis.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I actually, yeah, I actually tried that myself. And, uh, the security question is another thing that stumps people like doing using a security question that just has obviously like retrievable public information, like a mother's maiden name or something like that.
1: And they force them on you too. Like what the fuck, man? So one thing I like to do with the, those at least with the security questions is a, a good rule of thumb is to have like a system in place where you, you put a word or two words in front of whatever the security question answers. Oh yeah. Um, so like, you know, like a cow spots or something, you put the words cow spots in front of everything. And then the maiden name is cow spots maiden name is the answer. <laughs> if you do that, then at least uh, you protect yourself a little bit on the security. It's ridiculous that they force the security questions on you. And it's always like super obvious. It's like, what's your elementary school or, you know, what was your first car? It's like, are you trying to like ask for public information only? Like what's going on? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bad situation. So I guess I'll end at this point just with like doing a little, little section of, Overhyped or underhyped, so I'm just going to ask you about a few uh different things in Bitcoin and other topics. Uh, you just tell me over overhyped or underhyped, and then you can explain why or we can just keep going. Cool, I'm excited. let's go. all right, timing analysis underhyped yeah what what is timing analysis
1: Timing analysis is so all bitcoin all bitcoin data is on the public chain forever. Uh, Well, forever, if we're right, and Bitcoin succeeds. Um, And so you can use that data, the time of when the Bitcoin transactions hit the chain, to infer certain things about what those transactions are. So, for instance, a lot of people know that if you combine two transactions together, that's not great for privacy because uh, those two transactions will then be linked to each other, and then they could possibly be linked to you if either of them are linked to you already. Right. Uh, and and it, it gives an attacker or, or some kind of surveil, someone who's surveilling the chain, it gives them more information. With timing analysis, it ends up as the same end result, but you don't realize it. So if you, with slightly better, you know, probabilities on your side a little bit more than if you just outright combine them. But let's say, um, the perfect example right now is, is these CoinJoin tools, whether that's Samurai or Wasabi, where you have a bunch of CoinJoin outputs on the other end. And if you combine them together, you reduce the privacy gains you got. Sometimes you completely destroy the privacy gains you got. So people are sending them to cold storage as individual transactions. But if you you send 10 Bitcoin into, uh, you send a Bitcoin into CoinJoin and then you have 10 outputs on the other side, and those 10 outputs, all get sent to cold storage within two minutes of each other, and they all look like similar transactions. So they combine other heuristics, right? Like, oh, this went through CoinJoin, or this used a BEC32 address, those BC1 addresses, or this used an original SegWit address, or this was a two of seven multisig, because there's not many two of seven multisigs. And they all go out at the same time; they're all probably being sent by the same person. If uh, you send every morning, you wake up and you send a couple transactions. Uh, and there's a pattern there, then maybe that's the same person, you know, uh, what time are those transactions going out? What time did he pay me? Oh, I sent, you know, this person who I don't know his identity. I sent him a payment request and he didn't answer it for eight hours, but then at like eight thirty AM Eastern time, he sent me a payment, right? So he's probably lives on the East coast. Uh, so once you start going down the timing analysis uh, rabbit hole, <laughs> Uh, You get really, really fucking paranoid uh, (laughs) and you realize how, you know, how much we need to improve Bitcoin privacy. Uh, Like it just, it needs, we we need better tools and it needs to be easier for end users. Especially, and this is, this is why you see a lot of times when you have like these big hacks, like the Binance hack that happened relatively recently. Yeah. The Bitfinex hack. They move really slowly because if you're trying to move large amounts of Bitcoin, uh, through the network, whether you're using a mixing service or a coin join or whatever, uh, or you're trying to deposit in exchanges and you're trying all these different techniques. Uh, if, if you're if you're trying to move a large amount, uh, you're really susceptible to timing analysis. And this is why I think it's super important that users educate themselves on using Bitcoin privately, more privately now, because if, if shit hits the fan and your government starts coming after you, Uh, timing analysis pretty much ties up your hands. You can't move quickly. Uh, You have to move slowly and deliberately. So you have to be prepared. You can't be like, you can't be responding on the fly. All
0: right, moving on. Uh, The (laughs) altcoin (laughs) casino. I mean, I want to keep talking about it, but, uh, you know, we're running low on time. Um, So the altcoin casino as a metaphor. I,
1: you know, I... I, I'm gonna it's properly hyped, you know, I don't yeah. think uh, I'm not gonna say it's underhyped hyped uh, because there's way too much hype there. And I'm not gonna say it's overhyped because uh, at least on the Bitcoiner side, uh, everyone just thinks shit coins. I, I mean, I think long term all shit coins are going to zero, but I, I think that there's going to be shit coins forever. And I think the sh you know, the shitcoin casino is a, a major value prop of Bitcoin.
0: Uh, BTC pay server.
1: Underhyped, but I've been hyping it a lot, so maybe that'll change.
0: <laughs> all right, all right. Explain why why uh, it's underhyped.
1: BTC Pay is important because ultimately the Bitcoin privacy is going to come down to a circular Bitcoin economy, and we need our merchants to be able to run a self-sovereign stack, you know, without third parties and and without you know chain analysis companies surveilling everything that's happening. It, it it completes the circle. I think BTC Pay will be the ultimate on-ramp and off-ramp. People will not buy Bitcoin. They will earn Bitcoin for goods and services, and people will not sell Bitcoin. They'll spend it.
0: Right on. So the DeFi movement, uh, excluding just Layer One Bitcoin, overhyped. Overhyped. Why?
1: I mean, your exclusion really helped because I think Bitcoin is DeFi at its heart. Yeah. Uh, I. The it's nothing there is built for state resistance and that's the whole point so if you're not going to have state resistance then we might as well just use aws and td ameritrade
0: i'd argue that nothing there really seems like it's built
1: (laughs) yeah exactly it's i have a lot of issues with it but i'm surprised because i thought the i thought governments would crack down more and it's really unhealthy kind of that they haven't at least cracked down on the fringes because all this stuff is getting built with horrible assumptions. Uh, just super naive. I think uh, at the end of the day, like, do you want to take something like Maker down? You could take it down pretty easily if you're a major government.
0: Yeah, yeah. Conferences as a way to learn more about Bitcoin.
1: It's a little bit overhyped. Conferences are a great way to meet people some conferences are a better way to learn i like i like all the workshops that have been coming out lately yeah uh and and just and we had like kind of a desert there of conferences for a couple years where there was no really good bitcoin conferences and now we have like maybe like eight this year are like very solid conferences like your conference included um so I think it's like a little bit overhyped, but in a good way. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad that we've seen a lot of success there and that we have like a very robust conference lineup. All
0: right. Austin as a uh, U.S. capital for Bitcoin.
1: Probably underhyped. Probably shouldn't have more Bitcoiners move there, though. Seems like a central point of failure.
0: For sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in Nashville, so I just traditionally hate Austin rival cities, you know. (laughs) <laughs> there you
1: go we just we lost pierre to austin so oh yeah salty right now
0: yeah that community is growing running your own node bitcoin node
1: underhyped i think that there was uh, a lot of issues with the framing of why someone should run a bitcoin node up until this point
0: Uh uh-huh.
1: um, not to discount the sovereignty aspect you know run a node and verify your rules Not your node, not your rules. Very important, hard for people to grok and understand. I think people will understand if they once they realize that the only chance you have at using Bitcoin privately, more privately, is if you run your own node. Like that's a very meaningful reason to run a node. And I think we will see that um, ramp up basically uh, in terms of people's desire and actual will to run their own node.
0: Uh yeah, how about um the metaphor of of the citadel in sort of like the discussion of hyper hyper bitcoinization?
1: Uh, you know I personally prescribe to uh, citadel theory. Uh, my co-host Morty is very anti-citadel, but I don't think he gets where I'm coming from. You know, I don't I don't think I don't think a future with citadels is the ideal future. But I you know I think it might be what we have. You know, I I, I think I see like a I, I see a pullback from globalization and I see a return to more local government. And I think that's basically what I mean by Citadel. I think uh we will see people like basically take matters into their own hands on a local level. Um and because of technology we'll still be able to have a lot of the aspects of globalization. It's just um with more individual rights.
0: Yeah, I, I think some people forget too about like that metaphor comes from the Bitcoin time traveler Reddit post where, you know, it's done because people are, it's like post-apocalyptic world and people are like having to like protect themselves from from between like the people who own Bitcoin and the people who don't, which, you know, obviously is like a ridiculous metaphor if we're talking about right now, but it kind of drives the point that it's like, people are sort of driven to Citadels.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's like making the best out of a bad situation. You see it a lot in like sci-fi novels and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Where where basically like no one wants, you know, the world to decrease to that point, or go into that spiral. Um, But if that does happen, then you have to take care of your own and you have to, you know, secure your shit.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, Overhyped or underhyped? Generation Z as a uh, explanation for mass Bitcoin adoption.
1: I think it's underhyped. I think everyone's always caught off guard by the younger generation's adoption of new technology. I think I even was when I was the younger generation. Like I (laughs) got caught off guard with my own generation's adoption of technology. Agreed. Underhyped, overhyped. Reduction of screen time. It is overhyped in terms of everyone talks about it, uh, but it's underhyped in that we all need to reduce our fucking screen time. Uh, it's, it's, it's This this goes hand in hand with the other question uh, about Gen Z. I don't think any of us envisioned how much time we were going to be spending in front of these screens, even as the younger generation. Like, I, I never really saw it coming, and it's, it's kind of becoming – you know, I, I, I know it's an issue. I know I have a problem with it.
0: Yeah, I do too. <laughs> uh, final one, underhyped, overhyped. Every company will be a fintech company.
1: Overhyped. I think Bitcoin kind of lays the groundwork where you just have like a neutral internet money. Um, and so companies don't have to deal with that aspect of it. They just plug into the, you know, an open financial network. And they don't have, you know, I I think most of the fintech we see nowadays is just like lipstick on a pig. Uh, It's not real tech. It's just covering up all the bullshit we have running behind the scenes. And there's a lot of regular regulatory overhead that they also have to deal with. Um, So hopefully that will all get minimized. Um, Not completely gone, but hopefully that will all get minimized. Uh, We won't live in a world where like a company that just does fishing as a service and and you put in your bank account details gets sold for five billion dollars to visa all
0: right uh that's it thanks for coming on the show dude i appreciate you giving me all these answers on the spot like this
1: Uh, absolutely thanks for having me dave and uh, i look forward to meeting you in san francisco in march
0: yeah man uh we'll definitely have beers awesome looking
1: forward to it take care
0: Real quick too, here's a snippet of my interview I did back in November with Tom Bahar, the CEO of Pay. This is the part where he talks about what Pay does with user transaction location data. Just to get back to the app, I know when you allow Pay to know your location, you can get a better cashback reward kind of deal. Why is this the case since a lot of your merchants are, you know, larger chain retailers?
2: It, depending where you are, there are a lot of location-specific places, and even the larger retailers can sometimes have places that aren't fully supported, right? So we have every one-off, so like Wendy's and such. While we support a good vast majority of them, they'll also have kind of what we call um, you know, blacked out, Uh, retailers or locations where they won't support it. And it also differentiates the actual amount of the cashback because there's also things like happy hour and things like that that we also determine to provide more cashback. So it's really providing a more dynamic experience and the location itself helps us to also attribute the purchase to a location specific place, uh, which ultimately we try and, and return that value after we're able to attribute it successfully to the user by giving them that ability to see really the receipt of the transaction but also being able to see exactly where it happened i think one of the biggest things that we were able to solve that we're really excited about is that transaction information like sucks big time right like being able to decrypt a transaction itself being able to understand where it happened and all this stuff when you go and you review it lacks quite significantly and that's part of the fragmentation issue it's part of the the whole visa mastercard ownership issue that exists and so we with the tech that we were able to build Wanted to be able to bring that kind of solution back to people and say, since you are using pay, since you're allowing us to automatically attribute the transactions, we want to be able to help you kind of also understand what you're spending, how you're spending, where you're spending, things that your bank should have hopefully done for you, but doesn't. We want to help give them as much value out of their finances as we possibly can.
0: Do you also help vendors understand from the uh, purchasing insights what's going on? Uh, we
2: do report that this transaction happened, right? Like we'll say, Hey, there's this amount that was spent kind of thing. You know, we're expecting this cash back, right? That's how we, we get the cash back, but we don't tell them location information. We don't share location information with anyone or, or anything like that. It's very purely used to be able to correlate a transaction that happens to a retailers, you know, offer and then back to the user for their actual transaction. So it's not used or, you know, Kept for any reason outside of that.
0: The Bitcoin Magazine Podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine, and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.